Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. everybody episode 39 of the drunken taoist podcast it's interview time again today but before we get to that we have some introductions and we'll go straight to our first introduction ladies and gentlemen daniele bolelli thank you thank you thank you for using your perfect radio voice to introduce me it's my pleasure and um a few quick things big thank you to our sponsor onnit.com datsusara short design you guys know what we're talking about because we say it every time from amazing t-shirts straight out of thailand the softest thing you can imagine and crazy beautiful designs on it as everything from supplements to workout gear to amazing types of food uh, there's new stuff coming in all the time and one thing that we never bring up but it's actually really cool about on it is you get on at least on some products you get a 30 day no question ask thing so you want to try it you're not 100% sold but you have a curiosity you say I want to try alpha brain you try it doesn't work for you you call you say sorry didn't didn't work you don't got to send a bottle back or nothing no you keep what you got just send me my money back and that's it so it doesn't really get any better than that in the sense that you can try things without obligation it's only because they believe that you like their stuff that they can do this and uh, that's Usara, again, our very first sponsor, always supporting the show from day one. Um, we, we have every freaking thing we carry is a hemp made by Datsusara. We love this stuff so much. I just got a bag so. that's been through the airport probably eight different times in the past year, and it looks... It looks like it did when I pulled it out. It's so I'm sure nice. it's the Micro Ninjas protecting it along the way, but fantastic, and what a great cat, and couldn't be happier to be helping him out. And double thanks also to Chris for taking me. Um, he was in town, and he said, oh, you want to come to see Metamoris, the jiu-jitsu event in which Adi Bravo and Hoyler Gracie were squaring off. Got to go with him. Thanks so much, Chris. That was fun. For those of you out in the you know LA area, that um, my pal Paul and I have put a movie together called Amnesia, and we put it out to several film festivals. And the Independent Filmmakers Showcase uh, here in LA has graciously agreed to screen our film, and they actually awarded us Best Drama 
film of the festival. So that's pretty incredible. When is that going to be again? That's May 28th at 9.45. You can go to the Independent Filmmakers Showcase uh, website, IFS Film Festival, and uh, you'll be able to get tickets. So it's just a single screening, and they're like 10 bucks for the ticket. So Beautiful. it's in a pretty big room, and it'd be cool if people could make it out and check it out. I'd sure appreciate it. Uh, I'll definitely say hello, and maybe I get Bellelli to come out and say, check the movie out as well. So it's a very cool kind of, it's like a faux documentary about a guy who has lost his memory and all the skeletons come out of the closet so love it great i hope everybody enjoys it so if you have a chance and want to come out and say hello i'll definitely be there i can't wait to see it on the big screen so anyway uh anybody who's friends with harvey weinstein's tell them to come on out it's it's for sale we'd be happy to sell them to him um Taoist lecture series we have announced it in the previous episode as it's here it's done except that yes it's here no it's not done because we're having a few technical difficulties so we'll get around to having it Hopefully we'll be here at some point in May. I'm hoping that by the end of May we'll have the announcement that you can guys can buy it, download it, all of it. But, you know, I'll save my breath for when that time comes. Uh, just just letting you know that it's coming. We haven't forgotten about it, but we're not quite there yet. Um, having said this, I guess a quick, you know, if you guys want to check out Dakota Warrior, my mom's book about the story of James Weddell, it's on Amazon, and I'll usually provide the link in the episode notes. Ready to roll. Today, Mr. Scott Sigler here with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Speaking of the heavy new home process, you are friends with Matt Staggs, right? Yeah, that's Is correct. Is that how it... Uh... Yeah, I've known Matt uh, through um, the science fiction circles, I uh-huh. guess, for a while. And he's done some work with Random House and Savudu and uh, got to know Matt that way. And then um, we were... Uh, when we started this tour to promote the latest book, Pandemic, uh, we talked to Matt about helping us mm-hmm. book some different shows, and he's a connected guy, so he hooked us up. Yeah, Matt is a curious character. He's a very... We're going to embarrass him just because he doesn't <laughs> like people to talk about him that way, and of course we will, but, you know, Matt is actually still an invisible presence in my life because i actually never been in the same room with him physically. Oh, right? And okay. yet, by now, has been, because Matt was hired by this info when I had a book out with them to do mm-hmm. publicity for the book. He's the guy who originally hooked me up then with Rogan and with a few podcasts early on. So he very much opened the door to a lot of things that happen afterwards for me even in many ways like the very fact that we're doing the podcast in some ways can be reconducted to matt actions early on and then okay. matt is uh, i remember when i first again met him no i didn't meet him uh, when i first uh, we started interacting matt was like super nice guy Mm-hmm. But you could see where his life was going. He was very, you know, I forget w- which state is in, uh, not a state that he said he had a whole lot of connection to, you know, s- intellectual stimulation around him. He was somewhat of a proud, self-proclaimed nerd where he was just Dungeons and Dragons and very nerdy, very smart. But, you know, that was his and I don't know what happened or why, but talk about a man who changed his life. He's like, Matt is probably in his 30s or something. Mm-hmm. He quit his job that he hated and he, he decided to go independent. He started working out like a savage and he transformed himself from this 
chubby happy you know like i'm gonna stay home and read a book with my cookies this fighting machine is always doing jujitsu and stuff <laughs> and it's like all of that like that so he's a quite character and i'm glad that he hooked us up but yeah yeah enough um Mm, embarrassing Matt which by the way he will start uh, he was running a disinfo podcast for a while he's gonna mm-hmm. start his own very soon um, tell us about you instead um, do you have like 7 million books out there uh, right now I guess this is um, 9 actual books in, in print uh-huh. and then add 2 short 3, well, three short story collections that are ebooks and audiobooks so somewhere in the ballpark of 12 or Oh, I forget, more like 14. Damn. <laughs> Productive man. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, there's nine that are actually in print now. Then there's two that um, we've pulled down and are reworking. You're going to put back out. And then we're, uh, we're, we're now getting better at getting books into the audible store, right. getting real books, which is great because there's just a huge marketplace of people who love audiobooks. Um, so we do our company's empty set entertainment and we kind of operate like I, I work with random house. So I have five mm-hmm. books out with random house. Then my partner, A. Kovacs, and I put out our own books as well. So we do um, hard, you know, hard covers, limited edition, signed numbered hardcovers. Then we do paperbacks, ebooks, and audiobooks. We give everything away at our website, scottsegler.com, as a free. So all the audiobooks we record and then give it away as a free serialized uh-huh. podcast. And uh, that is the thing that put us on the map. And we continue to do, even though. Um, it raises a lot of eyebrows at Random House. Like, why are you why are you giving stuff away for free? <laughs> they still don't they still don't get it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome that you do. And in fact, well, I, I'm going to ask you more about your writing and when you started and all of that in a second. But since you brought it up, the, this business of giving stuff away for free, mm-hmm. you brought that up in uh, multiple occasions. I've seen in uh, interviews as a it's something that you strongly believe in. It's something mm-hmm. that's a big deal to you. Explain it exactly for all the people who the normal logic, the old time logic is the one that random house would have, which is like you work really hard at writing a book, mm-hmm. you make your living as a writer. It's not like you're doing as a hobby where it's like, oh, I'm just gonna toss freebie out there for everybody, whatever. So clearly the money needs to come in, and yet you're doing something where a lot of what you do is given as a freebie. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it started out, um, I've known I've wanted to be a writer pretty much all my life. Right. So somewhere in the third grade or somewhere around that ballpark. And so when I graduated college with a journalism degree, went to work for a newspaper in, in order to keep working at the writing. And then at some point in that made the decision, okay, now I'm going to go for it. I'm going to figure out how to become published. From that point on, it was like 12 or 13 years hmm. of rejection letters. And I had 130, I got filed with 130 rejection letters <laughs> and from publishers and agents. Right. And, um, just being too stubborn uh, to quit and then uh, had a deal with AOL Time Warner to put out a book called Earthcore and that fell apart in the 9-11 recession so that imprint was shut down and so I'd gotten there and then it had gone away Jesus and at that point um, at that point I was just like well I can't get published because people don't understand my cross genre is, they, is this a military is this science fiction is this horror is this a thriller it combines a lot of elements and that's right about 2005 when podcasting came out and i said well screw this i if i can record these myself and give them away i'll build up an audience mm-hmm. then show new york wow look at this audience that i have right and they will then you know throw money at my face 
and it didn't quite work that way. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it's worked out pretty well, but uh, in the process of recording my own audiobooks, two things happened. Number one, they were unabridged, so we gave away the whole thing. There was never a trick. We're like, I'm not going to charge you for the end or something like that. Right. And uh, what I hadn't expected was kind of a cult of personality that built up around this. So I, like any podcaster, I have the, you know, the show intro and tell people what's going on. Then I give them the episode. Then after the episode, here's what I'm trying to accomplish in my writing career. And here's all things that are going on in my life. And it built up this super diehard fan base. Right. And that carried me into a five book deal with Random House. And through all of that, I, I just had one requirement for the contract with Random House, which is I get to keep giving my stuff away for free. I'm not going to stop doing that. Because as it's gone on, we have learned that people really like having the opportunity to decide for themselves if they mm -hmm. want to pay for the content. Right. And it's not giving the content away as much as it is free advertising mm -hmm. and giving people an opportunity to, well, I'll give this a try. I've never heard of this guy, right. but of I'll course. give this a try. And a lot of people, or a certain percentage of people who try that, figure out you're the kind of author they like, and then they just go buy everything that you have. Right. So I've never been able to get random house to really understand of course that this is this is the best marketing you can get of course because it doesn't cost you anything it yeah. doesn't cost any sales and there's a an author named cory doctorow who's been doing this since 2004 or three somewhere in that ballpark with uh -huh. free pdfs and a lot of people who do it um if you give people the opportunity to try you out and you respect their intelligence enough that they can make their own choice right a lot of times they come back not just liking the content, but liking you and the fact that they were respected. So we we continue to do it. And I hope nobody else does it because it's a huge competitive advantage for us. We're no, that's brilliant, that's absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I guess one technical question, because I completely get it, it makes great sense and you're right. I mean, that model that they don't, your model, the one that they don't get is the new one. Mm -hmm. The old model is the dinosaurs, you know, it's slowly right. gonna go away progressively because something called the internet came around and it changed everything you know people expect to get a lot of stuff for free mm -hmm. which is fine the question i guess is how do let's say somebody read it for free they enjoy it is great why don't they read the next one for free why do they start putting money down at some point there's a a couple of reasons the, the first is i believe that the vast majority of people getting stuff for free online or pirating or mm -hmm. or whatever are more than happy to pay money for the product as long as it's a product that's worth their worth their time. Sure. What ticks people off is you you know something is hyped and you hear how good it is and you buy it and you find out that the author worked hard on the first half of the book then phoned in the second half and it, right. it's terrible and you're mad because you, you yep. worked hard for that money. Of course. So when people and usually they listen to two three four books for free and then after that they're fine. Right. I'm a proven commodity, and then they just buy the books whenever they when they come out. And now we're in a mode where Pandemic, the book that just came out on the 21st, you can have that ebook and you can have that uh, hardcover. The podcast won't come out for like another six or seven months. Gotcha. So people just want their story and they want it now. Now, right. And then the other thing that you find is <clears throat> people enjoy the podcast so much that they they really identify with it and they want some kind of memento or some kind of trophy for that. Sure. And the digital stuff is great, but there's nothing like that little bookshelf of the books that you yeah, really like. Of course. And then we tour as much as we can and that gives people the opportunity to come out and then they get to meet you face to face. They get stuff signed and buying, but by and large, it's just, 
you give it away, they try it out, they find out they really like what you do, and then you create that excitement about the next product right. coming out. And they can't wait. And, you know, it's at most it's 25 bucks for right. the hardcover. Once you've proven yourself to a fan and they, they want what you have, they've already, they pre-order it seven months ahead of time. They know they can get it for free, but they right. want it. They want it right now. And they, and they, the last part of it is once you've proven yourself as a really hardworking entertainer mm-hmm. that respects the intelligence and time and money, they want to help you. That's beautiful. They right. want to help you. So they not only buy it themselves, they're out encouraging their friends. You know, you got to try this guy. You got to try a Sigler and do that. So uh, it, it, it just keeps building and keeps building for us. And I think that's why. I think that was one of our big shocks when we first started the podcast. I think the very first time when we got uh, a donation and then we started seeing on a regular basis, on mm-hmm. a monthly basis, people sending us money mm-hmm. to get something that we put out for free. It's like, wow, that's a whole different way of thinking that the old time marketing publishing the old industry you know whether it's publishers or in any other industry don't get because it's always about we need to squeeze every last cent out of the customers how can Mm -hmm. we hook them to make them pay it's always this bargain it's always a fight trying to get their money and get and instead this is hey you like it you have no money that's fine care. just that's fine have fun you know yeah. tell your friends or something or write a review or do something if you feel like it if not don't even do that were you before or after the radiohead experiment where they put the record out and <clears throat> wait before yeah you were before so we were you, before we've been doing this since 2005 but even they found mm-hmm. out that they ended up with like six and a half dollars a record which was still five dollars and fifty cents more than the band yep. was ever going to get yep. right. from the record company yeah and um no people are definitely willing to give money for folks that are doing something that they appreciate the, these are such yeah. small amounts which yes. is what publishing's never really entertainment etc you know what a, i don't even know what a an album's 10 bucks now a, a book paperback right. books 15 a hardcover's 20 an ebook is you know anywhere from 99 cents to 10 these are really small amounts of money for most people who are who are you know wherever they want to be in their lives right it's not that much they they're more than happy to give it away right just they just want to know it's not being wasted yeah that's the only thing which is totally fair it's totally fair because it's like hey man you know there's a lot of stuff that looks interesting when you go through amazon but you know if you're gonna buy every little thing that looks interesting you're out of money before you know it because there's a lot of stuff that looks cool and you want to have an honest try and you feel like and I really dig this stuff, then of course you're going to be, it makes you happy to support the work of the people yeah. you dig, you know, absolutely. And the, the other thing you mentioned that um, some people just can't afford it. They don't have that 10 bucks. Yeah. And, and they, the, um, the value you get, you give to them by like, yeah, I don't care. If you, right. I've been, I've been there a yeah, hundred times. If you can't afford it, it doesn't matter because people literally will come up at, at shows and uh, apologize. Like, I'm really sorry. I can't buy stuff now. Like, right. The whole point of this is for when you can't buy it. But then, uh, now we've been doing this long enough, I had a kid come up at one of the most recent tour stops, and you know he's he's a grown man. He's got big old beard, and he comes right. up and he hangs out. He's like, yeah, I started listening to you in the sixth grade. <laughs> and, you awesome. know, and he showed up with this bag. Every book I had ever published, he had, and he bought them all and brought them to get them signed. Right. And now he's a grown up with a job and right. he knows that you know, that's one of the first things he's going to spend his money on is whatever I put out. And he'll do that for the rest of his life as that's long beautiful. as I, as long as I keep putting out good stuff. So you do get a lot of people who can't, don't have the money for whatever reason, but eventually, you know, they get squared away in their life and then they're, it's crazy. They're just so appreciative that you 
treated them with respect and understand that everybody has that moment right. in life where that doesn't work out and then they buy everything you put out it's ridiculous i'm gonna start crying this is a beautiful <laughs> beautiful story <laughs> This would be, by the way, number two of the day. Today I watch, um, for the 50th time, Mulan 2 with my daughter. I don't know what the hell is up with this. Actually, no, it's up with me. It's not just Disney, because every other freaking movie I watch, I start getting teary-eyed. I don't know. <laughs> I like to be moved by things. It's like... Yeah, I think you're just getting old. No, I've always been that way. I've always been like, this is just so beautiful. But in any case, sorry. No, that story is awesome. Yeah. You know, the fact that it's, a, it's how it's supposed to be. You mm-hmm. know, it's like somebody... You put something out because you want to, because it's your passion, because it it just explodes from inside and you want as much as possible people to read it. They then uh, don't have the money, they don't pay. Mm-hmm. Suddenly down the road, they have the money, they feel grateful that you were generous in sharing it to begin with and they give back. I mean, that's as, in many ways, I can see why, you know, the industry will look at this as like, what is this happy hippie bullshit? It's like, yeah, what are <laughs> exactly. we sharing and giving back and fuck that, you know, where's the money now? We need right. to squeeze them. And that's awesome that it's not just an idea, but that it works. Yeah. You know, it's something yeah. that actually does really work and it's beautiful. I mean, I love that. We're in, we're in a great place now. We've got a, we've built up a, a larger fan base, but right. the whole thing is just, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. We, we make people happy. Right, like that's what we do, which is really weird when you look at the tone of my books and the content. <laughs> there are these dark, violent horror stories. Right, you know, science gone wrong and people <clears throat> being horrible to each other. But uh, we we make people happy. They right. read this stuff and they're like, "Oh, that was I had such a good time reading that book. That was awesome." And so, you know, make people happy, make money off of making people happy. Yeah, it's pretty effing good life right there. Everybody wins. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that. That's great. How does um you said you've always wanted to write kind of like third grade you were on you're like this is what i want to do did you know uh, right from the start what kind of stuff you wanted to do like you know this sort of genre that you are and again i like earlier when you said it's not really a single genre one of the things the publishers Mm -hmm. had a hard time with you is where to place you because you were like four what in their mind are four different genres mixed together right that again is how the industry work right this whole idea of uh there are labels that we need to put there. And if you don't neatly fit under one, where are we going to put you? And it's like, yeah. but yeah, screw that. In any case, did you sort of have that sensitivity to that particular vibe from the well, get-go? Or is something that eventually trying different things you stumbled on? As a little kid, you know, seeing Star Wars and, and When, when like were you that, born? I was 70... 69. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you were fucked. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you you get caught up in all of that and right. you want to do that but it was the uh 76 it was king kong that my dad took me to see king kong uh-huh. which is a really cool moment for us because the first that's first movie i ever saw right first movie he ever saw was the original king kong which his dad took him to nice and uh and i was a little kid and the giant gorillas banging on the bamboo fortress and and roaring and i was i was crying my head off i was terrified and i of wanted course. to leave and we didn't leave because we'd paid money for that movie we were gonna stay my dad thought it was very funny <laughs> and then i'm crying like a little kid does and then we walk out of the theater and the first thing i asked him was when when can we go see it again right and and something happened at that particular moment where i'm like that i couldn't conceptualize it at the time but how awesome is that that i i was terrified in there but it's a movie theater and it's safe and i i want to go back and do that again and i knew i wanted to do something like that um 
and had no idea what that was. And then um, read uh, Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King, uh-huh. which I'd bought for my mom as a Christmas present because she was very into Stephen King. And then as I'm wrapping it up, I made the cardinal error of opening it up and reading the first right. paragraph. And then I wound up reading the whole book before I even gave it to her. So those two things together, I'm like, I want to scare people like that. And I want to do it in book format. That's how I want to do it. So I've been working at it ever since then. Nice. Was there a quick dose of Bradbury and Asimov after that? or I got to those guys like later in life because I was a... I was a dink of a student in high school. If the teacher handed me anything that I was supposed Couldn't to read, possibly be worth reading. I was like, yeah, garbage. Won't even look at right. this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'll get an A on your test, but I'm not going to pay any attention to this. And uh, so, no, I didn't get to absorb some of those things for quite some time. Yeah. Isn't that funny how when you're supposed to read stuff, it's like, it feels like crap. And then the decent <clears throat> chunk of it, when you actually read it on your own, is not bad at all. Or there may even be some brilliant stuff there oh, that you're like. Uh, almost all the stuff they gave us was great because I've gone back and read it. Or right. like, I was like, screw Shakespeare. I'm not, I'm not watching course. any of this garbage. Right. You know? He invents and, words. How dare he? Yeah. I, I was so <laughs> opposed to all of it. And uh, I was laughing. You were getting teared up at the movie. I was just on the flight here. Uh, the re- most recent version of Romeo and Juliet comes out and I'm like I love that I love that story I'll watch right. a little bit of it and then of course as soon as the characters start dying I'm like oh that sucks <laughs> you know getting a little misty eyed um, yeah, I missed out on a ton of stuff when I was in high school of course because of just a, a general surly bad attitude stuff you know like great great literature great fiction absolutely refusing to learn a second language there was no way in hell I was going right. to speak anything but English and now later in life, I'm like, that's one of the dumbest things I have ever decided in my whole life. Right. So, but that's All that being of- said, none of it explains Catch-22, though. <laughs> I've tried, and I've tried, <laughs> and I've tried. I've tried five different times. No, I There's nothing in there worth reading. The movie's unwatchable, probably because the book's unreadable. And I've felt this way about books before. I think one I fought for years was, I don't know if you ever read 100 Years of Solitude. Mm-hmm. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, one of the greatest books ever. But I fought that thing three times before finally something clicked right. and off it went and I don't think it's going to click for Catch-22 and um, Catching the Rye you're on that damn list too right? Um, but isn't it amazing how that fighting against what you know they're kind of jammed down your throat mm-hmm. will often uh, send you on a path of things that well, you want to read well I mean it makes sense because when you think about you know your whatever high school or junior high teacher and their face and their tone of voice and it's like and this is really important for you to read it seems they will develop your interest like shut up you are an awful human <laughs> being so anything that you say inevitably must be awful which is where we go wrong right because just because that person is an awful human being doesn't mean that the book they are handing you is equally awful and that's the problem. But uh, yeah, because I mean, I I remember even stuff like, I don't know, the Iliad or the Odyssey, you mm-hmm. know, these big epic poems. When you read them in uh, high school or junior high or something, they you want to shoot yourself, you know, it's painful. And then when you read them for what they are, if nobody's forcing you, there's some amazing stuff in there, like a lot of these different things. So no, I, I feel your pain, definitely. That makes and, sense. Well, the, and the older you get, you find that, the stuff that you liked in junior high and high school and in college really is a variation on these classic tropes, you know, and the number of times that uh, Romeo and Juliet has been remade and renamed Mm -hmm. something different. And once you start to see those patterns, you're like, Oh, okay, well go back to the source material. And it's pretty good. But a lot of it too is, you know, 
I'm sure they do the best. Both of my parents are, are teachers, and my brother right. and sister-in-law come from a whole family. I'm the only one who's not a teacher in my family. And um, trying to pick the right stuff to give to high school students mm-hmm. has got to be a, a tricky thing. But like Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune, which is one of my favorite books of all time, I read that in high school, and I was just like, you know, catch-22. I'm like, right. what is this crap? I put it down. Um, couldn't process it at all. And then right. picked it up again when I think I was 24 and read it and was like, holy crap, this is unreal how good this is of course because now i had a little bit of life experience to wrap around everything no that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. absolutely it's uh and and there's nothing like being forced to do stuff for it not to click you know that's just the nature of the business where it's just not gonna happen plain and simple Mm -hmm. um so writing process you started way early on knowing and you've always done fiction, right? You never veered into the non-fiction direction or... Uh, other than uh, being a reporter in journalism. Right. But that was the job. But as far as anything I want to write to share with people, no. All it's fiction. always yep. fictional mm-hmm. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. How many years did you spend at that? Um, at the journalism part of it? Yeah. Uh, I'm like four years in school and then three years professionally because I was a... A sports writer for a small town chain of newspapers in Michigan. Uh-huh. But when you work for a small town chain, you, you cover everything. So you cover student council and tragedy and all that stuff. And um, I was not a big enough jackass to make it in the world of journalism. Right. You know, the people who are really good at what they do, um, they may be annoying when you watch them on TV or read things, but a general entitled sense of invasion of privacy is mandatory for that job. <laughs> Right. If you respect boundaries, you should not be in the world of journalism at wow. all. And I could never, I could never get over that. And then, um, and then, you know, the, the sense of excitement in a newsroom when a tornado is coming through town, or right, we had, uh, we had a serial killer in our community in the three years I worked there, and four girls died from this. And it's a whole different ballgame when you're covering it. But people. Like were respectful and sad that these girls had died and they did everything they could in the story, did not change the fact there was a general sense of excitement and buzz in the newsroom. Of course, and it uh, finally when I realized what that was, I was just repulsed. I'm like, I I'm not good at this job. I can't do this job. Yeah, so I spent I four it. years in newsroom and TV newsroom in Nashville, and one fine evening, getting ready for the ten o'clock rundown, somebody said, "I wish somebody would die." There's just nothing going on. Yeah, yeah. That you get a real reality of exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, and none of them would ever accept the fact. The only pe- only reason anybody watched anything we did is because they wanted what the weather was, mm-hmm. and everything else was just filler to hold the commercials between the weather. Right. And uh, that's, that's all also, I can take. I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And that's weird how things are changing in that regard because the journalism itself that at some point was a very big deal is just there's no more money, you know, because there's so much stuff for free on the net Mm -hmm. that the organization that would put a bunch of money to do investigative journalism and really digging deep into the story, paying somebody, it's like, who's going to do that? There's just no, there's no return. So journalism in itself is either dying or definitely changing, to say the least. Yeah, There's a huge uh, transformation of the whole game because the economics of it are not what they used to be. Well, when so Assange so. and Snowden are literally the biggest journalists in the world at this point, I mean, what are we going to do? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's definitely no money in that. There's a lot of getting sued and going to prison forever. <laughs> right. But yeah, exactly. In the you know back in the day, you would have that would have been a journalist job to do all the investigation, the thing, yep. find out, dig the information, get... That's not what happens anymore, which is, again, it's not a nostalgic thing because like with anything, you know, as you said, with your approach through podcasting and the internet, you're able to do things and in a much better way communicate with an audience than ever it was before. Mm-hmm. 
some things at the same time that may have been valuable at one point are definitely going down the drain and it's you know that's the process of evolution right everything changes and it's never a purely 110% positive or purely 110% negative is a mixed bag with new opportunities doors that shut down and that's the name of the game yep yeah so okay so you started writing um of course at the beginning you know you write your own stories read for yourself you don't do much with the whole process of going through the seven million rejections and all the doors shut in your face, getting to crank that door open and then 9-11 hits and the door gets shut mm-hmm. back in your face. At what point does um, believing in yourself and keep pushing forward turn into just delusional craziness? Clearly that's not your case because in your case it worked out. I've, I've tried to figure that out, not just for myself. But, right. Um, <laughs> I, I I have one. Uh, I have a couple friends who have stayed at stuff long after they should have quit. Right, and you know that you are not qualified for this. You're not really good at this, and you have a giant line of bullshit. And and those people have wound up turning that into a successful business. And then I have other friends who have stuck with stuff that long after they should have quit, and it doesn't look like they're ever going to go anywhere. And they're they're still going after it. Um, so I don't. I don't have any idea in general, but with me, I was, uh, I came from, um, my dad was a football player in college and my brother was a football player and, uh, he went on to play in, in college mm-hmm. and I was this just tiny little kid. I was like the smallest kid in class all the time. And, um, having a brother who was, who was a great brother, but beat the crap out of me all the time. That was just how things go with brothers. Nature of the business. And I, yeah, nature of the business. And at some point I I built up this uh this attitude that like you I will keep coming after you all the time, even after long after I should have stopped doing that. Right. And that served really well in football because even though I was like third string quarterback and never played, it was my goal in practice. Like I'm going to I'm the slowest kid on the team, but I'm going to win half the win sprints at the end because I'm going to push harder than anybody else. And just that I will find my little victories here and there. And then if there was a chance to actually hit somebody, you know, when everybody else is relaxing because it's practice, well, that's my Super Bowl that moment. Right. I'm going to damage somebody. And that attitude wound up, we're great because we got wrestling in my high school when I was a junior. We never had it before. Mm -hmm. So I spent the first year in wrestling getting the crap kicked out of me. But that attitude of I'm just going to keep doing this until I beat you. My right. senior year, it helped a bunch, and I won like I went twenty eight in my senior year and had a great time, and then and that sort of crystallized that personality type. So when I um, started to get those rejection letters, that everyone was just like everyone went up on the wall, and I'm you know I'm short little Napoleonic complex kind of guy, and I'm like I'll I will show you you're going to regret sending me that letter. So you're a stubborn motherfucker. <laughs> it just, right. It was sheer it was sheer stubbornness and uh, you know and petty bitter and jealous I guess and every I had a wall full of letters and yep. that was the attitude like everyone I got and uh, and then at some point. I maybe I was at 20 or 30 and I just said the goal isn't to get published anymore. The goal is to get a hundred rejection letters. If I get a hundred rejection letters, then I know I'm, I'm serious about this and right. I'm going to find a way to get through, but I got to get to a hundred first. Right. Uh, and that, and so just kept going at it and then may, I could still be getting rejection letters. Who knows if it hadn't been for podcasting and being sure. able to, of course, 
go to a publisher and say, look, I can sell, you know, books. You've never heard of me and I can write number one on Amazon or something like that. And, uh, and that happened before. Now in eBooks it happens a lot more now, and that's turning the publishing industry on its ear. But when we, uh, we put out a independent book called ancestor on Amazon back in 2007, and it was actual paperback. They didn't even have eBooks then. Right. And when it hit number one uh, in sci-fi and number one in horror and was number two only behind a Harry Potter book, uh, the New York, that caught people's attention. Of in course. New York. They're yeah. like, who is this guy who can do this that we spend thousands of dollars on and we can't do that? Right. And that led to other things. So it was you know, all just the general, just being too stupid to know when to quit, I Which think has driven um, me all the way through important. the board. Yeah. Excellent. So the moral of the story for those of you guys listening is uh, always beat your little brother. Yeah. It's very <laughs> it good them. for them. Just <laughs> keep at it. You know you're doing them a favor, so just keep pummeling them. It's yeah. good for them. It's very it's very good for them, yeah. That and your concentration on your watercolor, uh, wood grain, um, artistic endeavors, don't ever quit. <laughs> Stick with it, right? You'll most likely have rooms full of it, but, you know, maybe two, three hundred years down the way, the, the cellular structure will become a very popular thing, and uh, you'll be the next Van Gogh. Well, so, you know, some of the things I think, it, it it's also important to look at the real world, the real business world. Sure. And fortunately, what I was in, you could look at it and say, okay, people are making money selling books. People are making money. This is an actual sure. genuine business. So um, that was the other thing, I think, that kept it going. But some friends pursuing really esoteric, wild stuff, you're like, okay, let's say you become the best in the world at that particular thing. Right. How does that put food on the table? Because yeah. you're third already and hadn't made a nickel. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. And uh, I mean, that's why the whole element of popularity in terms of what sell and what doesn't is so weird. There's a story that always I found fascinating. I forgot who told me a story about this like world renowned violinist. Is that the word? Mm-hmm. Violinist? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who um, took this violin that by itself, just the violin alone was worth like $3 million or something. It was like this crazy, super fancy, top-notch, high art level. What did he do? He went into the subway in New York and uh, went under the subway and started playing with a hat in front of him. And, you know, most people would be like, there's the guy who throw him a quarter. And most people go like, look at him and are like, eh, whatever, you know, and they overwhelmingly ignored, right? And that same night, he goes to play at the top theater in town with seats that are worth $250 to sit close to it, and there's the line at the door. And it's the same guy, and Mm -hmm. he's still playing. And that's like, there's something to be said there about the actual quality of what you do is one of 17 different elements that go into whether it's going to be successful or not. Quality is nice. That's great. It helps, but you know, there's plenty of crap published out there that does insanely well. That clearly shows that quality is one element, not the only you one. You promised you weren't going to bring Daniel Steele up this week. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, but I mean, is uh, it's kind of it's the name of the game, right? It's how. So it's tricky how you not only have to be a hell of a writer or a hell of a musician or a hell of a filmmaker or a hell of whatever that may be, but you also need to have a lot of other skills, such as in your case, is figuring out a way when none of the agents, publishers are just opening the door for you and laying down the red carpet, mm-hmm. how am I going to get my name out there that enough people care about to read it to figure out that there is quality out there, that they do like it, that they're, how do you even get them to give you a chance? 
how do they even you can write the best book in the universe but if nobody has ever heard of you nobody will read it yeah and it's nothing to do with the fact that you're not an awesome writer you can be the greatest writer ever it just if people don't know it it's the end of it and that's the, the right now i i think that this is the best time in the history of mankind to be a creator right because because of the internet particularly if you have anything you know that can be digitized and and so we had now we have free global distribution right which has never existed 20 years ago that that had never existed there's always the supply chain and the middlemen to move product from point a to point b then there's the stores that decide what product they're going to show then there's advertising and now uh you can have a great book and you can get it in front of people and going back to the ebook store is just blowing up at, at Amazon. It has been for a while, but right. you've got guys, you've got people that you've never heard of who are making a hundred, 200 grand a year, selling thousands of copies of books and having happy fans and they're happy and everybody's having a grand old time. But the, those without, without fail, all of those men and women who are doing that have also learned the promotional side of things. Right. What's the algorithm Amazon uses for if you like this, you will like this? How many reviews do I have to get? How many copies do I have to sell in week one, week two, week three? And they go through and they figure that process out. And then there's other people who will do that and or how do I like what we do? How do we how do we promote? Right. How do you become, you know, larger than life personality and how do you get in front of people and get people to tell other people about it? So um, I do see people now who write really cool stuff, but they're they're in, in their theories and they're now kind of a dinosaur. They're like, well, somebody else is going to do that for me. And it doesn't work that way right. anymore. If you want your art to sell and you want an audience, that's, yep. that's on you. So now you have to be a writer and a marketer slash mathematician, but the opportunity, I mean, there's never been an opportunity like this ever. It's amazing. No, in fact, that's the great stuff because if you depend on the industry and again, we're not just trashing publishing, it applies to most creative industries. Mm -hmm. Now it's, kind of funny like when you have those conversations with agents or with you know with the people who open the door and lay down the, the reality of it is that what they typically want is they want an awesome product mm -hmm. uh, but yeah that's great i like it but so what you know where's uh, do you have a platform do you have a whole audience tied to you do you have marketing do you have idea of how to promote it do you have and the question that becomes is yeah i have all that so let's try this again. Why do I need you again? Mm -hmm. Because you are basically a printer. I can get my printing done without somebody taking an overwhelming majority of the profits at that point. Because if you're not putting anything into it and you're asking me to have all that ready, what's your function again? You know. And so in many cases, publishers really have to start thinking who they are because they clearly are not who they were 10 or 20 years ago. Right. It's a different job. And... Uh, and I don't think it has fully kicked in on how that process works. Yeah, I think I think there's still <clears throat> there's some denial yeah. in in the publishing world, and uh, what they there's a couple of things they still do really well. Mm -hmm. There's three things. One is distribution. Yep. More books are still bought in print than online. Right. So most people are still reading physical books, and that right. that will gradually change. Physical books will never go entirely away. Sure. But right now it's, you know, maybe 65, 35 print to ebook. Right. And when eventually that's going to shift to 50, 50. And when that happens, most bookstores are going to shut down because they're yep. already a small margin business to yep. start with. So distribution and getting books into bookstores and then taking, collecting money for that. And then the books that don't sell, taking them back and handling that process. Publishers are good at that. Most publishers are good at making your product better. Like my editor at Random House is awesome mm -hmm. and has helped my books were <clears throat> they were pretty good to start with but <clears throat> excuse me now they they become a much better product right and 
Uh, so they are they are good at that. And then the last thing they're good at is is package design. So that make the book pretty, make a good cover, good layout, make sure there's you know it's there's no typos in it, etc. But uh, those last two things. There are now, with the downsizing of publishing, you can go find people who have done those jobs yeah. for 15 years and are experts in their field, and you can hire them as a freelancer, and you don't need them anymore. Absolutely. So it has really come down to the two things that publishing can do that you can't, which is distribution, right. which we've now got figured out on our own. Right. Um, we can put our own books into stores, so that works great. The other thing, but the last thing they can do that people can't do is turn on the money hose. At any point, you know, Twilight, which people love right and people bag on it all the time like you don't sell that many books unless you've done something right for your audience of course but there was also an element of you know when they when they felt they had something hot they were like okay now we're gonna market the crap we're gonna cover gasoline and light it on fire and and that and that still happens on a regular basis there's a book out i think this week called uh red red rising and it's the first book of a trilogy and Mm -hmm. do you remember that kid's name yeah, um, Pierce wrote this, and I I read it and gave a, a cover blurb for it. And it's a, it's an awesome book. I love it's fantastic. Right. I highly recommend it. At the same time, you went to Comic Con seven months ago, and there are giant banners of this thing hanging down. And this is this is his oh Pierce Brown. That's right. I'm sorry. You know, this is his first book, right? Ever. He's like 24, 25, and he's totally caught the tiger by the tail, and he's right. going to have a great career. But you're at Comic-Con where people are spending millions of dollars and he's the biggest thing you see. You walk around outside of Comic-Con and there are beautiful women, you know, semi-scantily clad, pushing around carts of his books and passing them out. Right. And that's why I took a book in the first place. I'm like, well, sure, I'll take that. And then I read, I'm like, okay, I understand why they're spending money on this because this is going to do very well. But at the same time, that's something that publishing does for his book that doesn't do for somebody else's book that, right. that could be equally as well. The publisher decided we're going to make this book blow up and we're going to make this kid a star and that's totally going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, and that's, that however is the lottery, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the numbers are such that <clears throat> you hit that, yeah, you might as well win the lottery because it's about equal and it's that's something that publishers can do but again, they'll do it for five people a year yeah. or something at most. The part that gets, and the other one, the stuff you're saying about distribution and bookstore, that is uh, true still today, and but each day that goes by is less true as there are less bookstores, plain and simple. I mean, it's just, it used to be that a ton of sales where people walking down the aisles, looking at titles and going, huh, look at that, you know, or back in the day when, you know, publishers would pay money to make sure that certain books would be in the front window at the bookstore, that kind of right. thing. The problem is so many people don't do that anymore, right? There's like... What are we down to? One big chain. There's Barnes yeah. and Noble, and that's about it. And there's, there's, there's Barnes and Noble and Hudson. There's a few smaller chains, but there's right. one. There's only one chain left where every city in America is going to have one of those. And even those guys are not exactly doing incredibly well economically. So I mean, the whole process is, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting uh, to see how the whole game is changing in mm-hmm. that regard. So do you think? Books are generational, and it's going to something that's just going to sort of cleave off as the generations peel past. Because um, I'm never giving them up. I'm pretty sure that my wife swore she wouldn't. She's got a damn uh, iPad now that is taking. No, place. I, I don't. I don't think it's generational. I, there's readership is going to drop now simply because there's more options. Uh-huh. There's, you know, when I was when I was in junior high, for example, there were books, and then there were role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, which we burned a lot of time on right but then we had we had three networks and we had pbs and then we had the movie theater 
And that was it. Well, we had that thing called outside. We, we had that thing called outside, yeah. And now, um, in addition to those things, you've got 500 channels on cable. You've got right. the internet, which is endlessly distracting. And you've got people making great stuff on the internet, so that draws away from, from books. You've got video games. You've mm-hmm. got movie complexes. There are thousands of ways for you know young people to spend their time that that otherwise may have been in a book right so that being said there's just more competition now of course but i don't think reading reading is going to change and book writing is i think books are probably going to get shorter and more chapterized so that you know if you've got that five minutes you can knock out this discrete chunk of it right but i i definitely don't think it's going away and the other thing is that's still the primary place where new entertainment comes from for movies and tv yeah we've got two books that are being uh, they're they're trying to turn them into TV series right now, and um, these guys can make any TV series they wanted, but the the people who make movies and TV and video games are still they mine for books. They're looking at books. They're looking at graphic novels. They're looking at comic books, and graphic novels and comic books are another thing that that's reading. People yeah. are still reading, and, and that's where they get story ideas from. And then they like, well, let's turn your story into a TV show because yeah. their job is to make shows, not come up with original stuff. No, and that by the way is. Um I remember when you were on uh, Joe Rogan's show, you were mentioning now in many ways being on Rogan's the first time has helped you with the possibility mm-hmm. now of possibly getting a TV series going. Yeah, man, I don't know that I like you very much anymore <laughs> because how many times, you know, I've been on Rogan so many times and what I get is insane amounts of email from uh, a bunch of sweaty, tattooed males uh, <laughs> writing me emails, which don't get me wrong, I deeply appreciate, but... You go, and the first time you go, you get a fucking TV series. What the hell is wrong with this picture? Just life is unfair, so. Well, the History Channel's upside down right now, so unless you want to um, you know, produce duck calls or something, they're not really interested in that. Yeah. But when they switch it back around, it actually has something to do with history. You may have a possibility right. at that point. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's awesome. That's great right there. That uh, And that's exactly how it works, right? Rogan, you catch the right listener out of the half a million who are listening at the moment mm-hmm. who goes to the other person who say, hey, we need to do something with this, and you get the ball rolling. That's beautiful. Right and there's there. no place more desperate than Hollywood, as we can well see that the, the idea stream has somehow been dammed up way upstream. It's so, it, 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 we put a lot of thought in this. It's just, it's such a high risk game. Yeah. And if you're, you're somebody who's employed in Hollywood, your job security is zero. Right. So the first project you put out that is doesn't make any money. They're done. You're done. Yep. You're done. So the, it, there's an enormous amount of pressure on them. And coming up with something original and creative is really difficult really difficult for to do. sure yeah now switching slightly because we've been talking a lot about sort of the business of it and reaching an audience and you know the, let's talk more about the creative aspect and the passion of it all mm-hmm. every writer has a somewhat different writing process every writer there are people who you know if you put the quarter in they just shoot out a book in three minutes you know it's like they are they write in there are people who every word they have to just it's like giving birth you know Mm. there's and it's not that the end result may be equally awesome they are just different styles right there are different approaches to the process itself What's your thing? How easy it is for you to just churn out a book? How much of a... What's the... You sitting down and getting to work, what does it look like? Um, it It's never a shortage of ideas. 
I have too many ideas. Yeah, and, I'm familiar with that. And it, so the last five years since I, I partnered up with uh, A. Kovacs, has, and she kind of manages the project. We said, what projects do you want to work on? What's your priority? And then she'll hammer out, what's our schedule to get these things done? Right. Because my problem has always been, I work on this project for three days, and then, oh, I'm going to start this project over here. Of course. I'm going to start this project, and then I'm going to promise this to this person. <laughs> yeah, I'm and, very familiar <laughs> with that. that. Yes. So our, our process is um, figure out which thing we want to work on. Right. And then discipline myself enough to actually work on that thing. Once that's done, it takes me a while to write a book because the, the genre I write in is kind of hard science horror. Mm-hmm. So we want it's kind of you know Michael Crichton or old Douglas Preston Lincoln Child or Stephen King was science instead of the supernatural. Right. When you do the supernatural and can make up your framework as you go, as long as you're keeping that consistent, there's you know there's no rules at all. Of course, it's it's I it's got to be super fun when you're doing it with science. You know we have we got two two PhDs, we got an MD, we got all these science people who go through everything that I write and check it for accuracy. Wow. So there's a multiple layers where we're like, we're trying to make it as realistic as it possibly can be. Right. So if there's any way this particular part of the plot can be done with real science, we do that, then that requires going back and reworking all the structure to get to that point or of to course. make it all happen oh no that's a multiverse inversion right there man <laughs> that's what happens yeah. when that happens your doctorate doesn't understand that we don't reconfigure the phaser array a whole lot uh, in right books. so that uh <laughs> that level of, of doing everything you can to pay respect to science because it it just makes it more real now people love all kinds of books you love paranormal books science books science fiction crazy whatever and i like all kinds of books but um, I can only write assuming people are like me and people like me, if you can read it and see there's some actual real stuff here. I remember reading about that five years ago. I learned about that in class, right? It does something to your brain where you allow yourself to be pulled further into the story. Right. And so that's just the, that's just the genre that I happen to write and trying to make it as realistic as, but it slows things down an enormous amount. Of course. Um, that's, so that's the modern day thrillers that's infected contagious and pandemic which just came out a book called nocturnal which you're trying to turn into a tv show and ancestor and then the other side of the spectrum by the way they did tell you that you can title things with two words right okay just they did just checking (laughs) we did that with our other series because they put a the in front of everything so we have the rookie the starter and this is um an american pro football league 700 years in the future with aliens playing different positions based on their physiology (laughs) so our aliens don't just have stuff on their face they're crazy big or crazy Uh, fast that's awesome and those are because that's that's 700 years far future science fiction. Now I can bring in a little of the magic. Well, they just have the technology to do that. And right. I don't explain it because it doesn't matter to the story. You're watching, you're watching this redneck quarterback trying to work his way through this, this league and survive long enough to win a title. Those tend to go those faster. Those are faster rights because I can... There's so much more freedom. Right. So that's not paranormal, but it's, there's no difference because the, the, the science is magic. Right. You know? And those tend to write a lot faster. So those are the two different spectrums in which I work. And um, yeah. Like how long, from the time you have an idea on, you know you develop the structure, you have the plan for what the plot is going to be like, what does it... Um, you need the... No, no, she, she knows this better than oh, okay, I do. Okay, okay, so. okay, cool. So the... Um, how long does it take you typically to actually write it out from beginning to end? What's a whole project take, you think? Four months? That's Four it? Months. To get the first draft. To get the first draft. Still, that's yeah. fucking crazy. Well, that, that's it used fast. to take, it used to take 
uh, two years of right. my life to write a book. Yeah. But um, about 2008 or so, I was able to go full time. Uh, and, you know, and, wow. and not, now not only am I full time, now I have uh, a business partner that right. handles the part that I'm really weak at. Which is, oh, God, look at all this work. How am I possibly going to get all this done? I got to do all this stuff first and I get stressed out. And, and now I, I get up in the morning and like, there's my calendar. And like, if I just work on this, then work on this, work on right. this. So I've, I'm really lucky in that this is my full-time job and that helps uh, a ton. Of course. And then I'm really lucky in that I've found uh, the areas that I'm really weak in. I've found someone to help in those areas that I'm weak in. And that the stress level has dropped and the productivity has cranked up quite a bit. And so. the weep marks on your back are just extras yeah. as part of the, yeah, I got it. No. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the, that comes into play when I, I call uh, probably every other day, call my partner and be like, hey, what if we did this? Right. And I hear, okay, we can do that if you want to put this project on hold for six months and then miss this, this deadline and miss this deadline. Is that what you want to do? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so not even the weep, just guilt tripping you into it. It's like yeah. where you go back with, uh, you know, just tail be- with, between your legs and going like, no, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't mean it. No, I, I want to put that product out and I want us to be able to eat. Yes, I'll get back to work. <laughs> so. Cool. So you're a little closer to the Stephen King model of just churn out a novel over breakfast than, the, I don't know, Tom Robbins, who's a guy who say, if I write one page in a work day I feel like I've done amazing right you know, right here uh, okay yeah I think another reason to be mildly envious here because that's I mean I, I tend to I notice my writing I have that giving birth element to it all it's like epic it's I sweat I need extra food I need uh, you know and that's why and that's also another part of the process whereas many people have uh, can write multiple drafts one then another then another and so on mm-hmm. I'm like by the time the words are on the page it's as close to done as oh, possible you know okay. there's gonna be some editing eventually but it's like it's not like I threw it out and then I'll go back later and I'll clean it up you know there's some people who do that very well right my thing is sort of that, you know, I need to draw blood out of me to put it on the page and that's going to take so much that then, yeah. you know, somebody. So it's interesting how that process of writing well, people were. We're exactly the opposite to that. Right. My, my, I, the shorthand term for my process is get clay on the wheel. So, you right. know, I'm get up, get up, go to the gym, clean up, get uh, on the, hopefully you're on the keyboard by eight o'clock. And then if it's a first draft, the outline's a difficult part, pre-outlining mm-hmm. it, but then once it comes right in the first draft, that's the funnest part of the whole process. Right. Because you just you can just throw down anything you want. And if you're going to put out, you know, a 100, 120,000-word novel, first draft's probably going to be like 160 to 200,000 words and just get stuff down and then go through for the second draft, third draft, you start carving stuff Cleaning away. Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that other model, exactly, which yeah. is more the... And I, it's funny yeah. because it's not like there's a right or wrong it's really how nope. you're built it's your dna in a way mm-hmm. it's like really how like to me writing is funny it's like i don't i don't really enjoy writing i enjoy having written the moment <laughs> where you go back and you look and you're like god damn did i write that that's like <laughs> wow i can't believe it but the process itself when you have to sit down and sit through it mm-hmm. You're really like, do you want to give birth every day? That kind of feeling, you know, is like, to me, is there's um, there's something to be said about, you know, when you read like very ancient writers from exactly the Homer kind of thing, you know, we're talking way back in the day. And uh, the way they speak, 
speak about their craft is uh, they speak almost in a way that sounds like spirit possession. You know, the whole idea of the muse uh, that inspire you. Yeah, but the muse is a hard master sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that element that is not that the muse does the work for you and you can just sit back and be like, I'm inspired. It just comes through me. No, it's like you have to be exactly at that stage of receptivity for something to go through you and again in some cases they conceive it as this outside force in other cases uh -huh. more obviously probably is your own internal creativity to let it kick in and ride you but that element of you have to be in this great state of balance for it to flow you know perfectly and otherwise and it's there's effort there's sweat there's uh, you know there's sort yeah. of the Nietzsche line you know a fool that is written I can only enjoy what's written with a man's blood mm -hmm. that element of you need to put your heart and soul on the page which is not necessarily an easy process right it's like sometimes it's like Jesus man that's why well, that yeah, out of me that that that's something I've only recently discovered in my writing is uh -huh. the heart and soul on the page and like wait a minute all this terrible crap that is happening or is happening uh, I can throw that, you know, change it around a little bit. And right. like now it's raw and emotional. I can get that into the story. Right. And, um, you know, my, my, the older I get, the more relationship difficulties or, uh, you know, friend interactions there are in the story. So instead of those just being placeholders now, now that the meat of the story is uh, this character in Nocturnal is partnered with uh, Brian Clauser and Pookie Chang, our inspector, homicide mm -hmm. inspectors for San Francisco Police Department. And they're great buds. And then all of a sudden, Brian starts having these dreams about um, killing people. Right. And they wake up the next day and find bodies exactly in those places and in those conditions. And that that seems to be the story on the surface. But the real story and what drags people in is the anguish that his partner Pookie goes through trying to figure out if his, if his partner is a killer. Right. And watching their friendship <clears throat> crumble and be strained and watching these two guys try and keep it keep it together in this impossible situation so you know that's that's a, a magnified version of friendships gone wrong and you just get older and you spread apart and it just you know it rivets people yeah um but we don't yeah i it as a as my primary job is writing we don't wait for the muse you have, you have to yeah. beat, you have to beat the crap out of the muse absolutely if it takes an hour of writing garbage to yep. get back in the zone well yep. then you throw that out and then once you're once you get there you roll but that's the priming of the muse isn't it i mean yeah. that's songwriting movie making no matter what it is that moment when it's flowing and you're more channeling than actually i guess you've never had it before if it's torture every step of the way but there's definitely moments like uh, yeah, editing's my thing, and there are times where that first hour and a half is just a waste of time. Yep. But it's all building you up to that moment where the flow starts. Yep. And then you don't want to stop till it's done. I just had that. Right. Uh, we were just in uh, Las Vegas for the New Media Expo, but I had a I had a de major deadline to hit, so go do the panel, go back to the room and write. And we're at the the Rio Hotel, and I have table right here, and there's a whole window, giant glass window next to me. And I think I started writing about noon and had that feeling like, oh, God, there's no way I'm going to get in this. I don't feel good. I'm right. Like and then at some point, pushing through it clicked in. And when I got, I finished the book and then looked at it and it's like pitch black outside. And I'd had no concept. Yep. So like six hours had gone by. And I'm, right. pr I'm pretty sure I went to the bathroom. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and and just like, so that's, that's what I call when you really get yep. the muse dialed in is when yep. things are just happening and it's effortless yeah yeah big time but to get to that place of effortless it kicks your ass yeah you kicks know? Your ass. And, totally uh, kicks your ass 
Yeah, because I mean, if you depend on just uh, writing when you feel like it or when inspiration strikes you, yeah, you write three days a year. You know, that's not going to do much. Right. So the point is, how do you make that state happen, which is a sort of flowy, natural state, and it seems weird to be able to force that state, and yet that's what you have to do, or you never write. You mm-hmm. know, that's just how it goes. But yeah, man, that's interesting. Now, there's, um, I'm a bad man, so I had this awesome tom robbins quote that i wanted to throw out and of course i fucked up and i forgot to i thought i had it here and i can't find it but you ever read tom robbins by the way Mm -hmm. um tom robbins is probably my favorite there are a couple of guys that in terms of writing styles fiction are sort of at the top of the pile definitely tom robbins uh, don winslow uh, here does thrillers they're not really my thing but the way he writes it's like man the way he put words together in any case back to tom robbins one of the things that you write about um, the point of writing, he tend to argue that writing is about, it's entertainment, of course, there's that element, but there's also something about, in some way, elevating consciousness, in some way, and, and keep in mind, Tom Robbins is funny as hell, half mm-hmm. of it is comedy, half of it is deep philosophy, half of it, it's all, you know, very cool, smooth, fun fiction, but one of the things he argue is, I'm tired of every time I read a book, it's always, you know, rape and dysfunction and fucked up families and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. I mean, not that all of that stuff doesn't exist or is not real, it exists, it's very real, but one of the things he argues for his own writing is this desire to use writing to bring, uh, put the accent elsewhere to sort of bring a different kind of consciousness in the universe. Other people clearly disagree with that, and it's totally fine in terms of, you know, there are certain, I tend to be a bit darker in my imagination than mm-hmm. he is, and I dig it. And I don't think he's necessarily antithetical to having that but what do you think do you think there is an element of sort of a greater cosmic responsibility so to speak in terms of a writer to create to shape the world in addition to entertain the world well the way i would interpret that with what i do is i feel my job is i i entertain people these Mm -hmm. are entertaining stories and we introduce that element of the fantastical you know the horror the crazy science fiction monsters and whatnot because I don't I can't read those books about the dysfunctional family right that's all that it's about because I'm like I can go hang out with my family if I want that type of thing right if I want to see you know all of the evil in the world I can you know go back to Detroit and hang out (laughs) down in Woodward for a while right so um, I feel kind of a higher consciousness responsibility what my job is is to give someone a story and construct it so well that they totally forget it's a story. They get lost in it, and their brain starts to um, absorb these imaginary people, and as soon as those people start to feel real, and that's one one of my regular tricks, is there's a lot of different ways to introduce things like if this character is watching this TV show and you've watched this TV show, it's the subtle things like that. All of a sudden, it's not it's not a character anymore. It's it's your buddy. You've experienced something, right? And he or she's experienced what you've experienced. If you can do that and suck them into the story, it gives their brain a break. And uh, I I call that hitting the reset button. If mm-hmm. I can take you out of your world for an hour or two at a time, and then you you know you just kind of relax about all the stuff that's driving you crazy, and it's it's therapeutic, right? 
It's like, you come live in my world and stop worrying about your problems for a little while. Right. And when you come back to them, it's like you've had a nap and you're now ready to look at that in a new light. And I get that all the time for my readers that so, I take them away somewhere else and then they can come back to theirs and they've, they've gotten a break. They've gotten a breather and they can get back to their difficult lives. So fiction as a mental workout. I dig that. Yeah. As, yeah you know, like you a spa in. day or something, right. you know, like you, you go worry about these other crazy things that are going on. And then when you come back to your world, you know, you've just got, had a chance to get away from it for a while. Right. And it makes a huge, it makes a huge difference. We get, a ton of fan mail and that kind of thing where people basically say that I was going through this and it can be anything from uh, one of the people who came and uh, chatted with us at Baltimore was talking about how how helpful the stories were when he was getting in a really difficult divorce because in his really difficult divorce that's around you 24 7 that's all you live when you're going through that but I could get him you know when I got him and took him out of that it gave him a chance to get away from it and he was able to come back but you know, people studying for final exams or moving or changing jobs or going through divorce, death right. of the family. We've gotten stuff from people who are like, you know, in cancer wards and things. And it's just, that's the greatest gift or blessing that, uh, of this, which I never saw this coming. Like right. when I started doing this, I was just like, I basically write movies that are on paper right. and I'm influenced by movies and it never crossed my mind that people would come back and go, that was super helpful. I'm like, right. it's a story about a pack of man eating monsters on an island. <laughs> How, how exactly is that super Play helpful to and you? again right? oh, yeah. for Thursday in Hollywood yeah. right yeah it's like, like, like answers is a straight up creature feature but you get that from people like man it was that was so much help to be able to read that I'm like oh, that's great right so I see what I, I think I see what he's saying maybe in that regard as far as consciousness but it just a really well done story helps people get along with their lives so there's a entertaining slash therapeutic element to it all mm -hmm. where the two functions are combined in the regard and they can yeah yeah yeah, yeah that i've works. never really been i just in the the real world which is what most proper literature is you know if you write you go to the new york times book page it's book after book after book that is, oh, this this person's dysfunctional family in the Hamptons, etc. Oh, yeah, and course. people love it, and it's as long as people like the book, that's great. I just never been able to relate to that because I read through it, I'm like, this is real life. Why would I want to take yeah. time away from my life to read about real life? I look out the window, right? Yeah. So my my head's always in the clouds, making up crazy stories, stuff yeah. you would never see in real life. And uh, speaking of which, you have already done so a lot of books by now, but uh, clearly you have a ton of years of writing ahead of you and is there anything that you are dying to do that you haven't done some project that you were like i'm gonna get to that eventually at some point and i really freaking want to do that but first i need to take care of this and this and that or yeah i um we're working on two tv shows right now and uh -huh. by working on it i provide support material to the people who are trying to make this happen so right one is Carl Beverly and Sarah Timberman, who produced Justified in Elementary. Uh -huh. They're trying to take my book Infected and turn that into a series. Right. We'll see how that goes. The other gentleman is Lloyd Levin, who produced Hellboy, Hellboy 2, um, The Watchmen, Die Hard 2. So he's done like some of my favorite movies. Right. He's trying to take my book Nocturnal and turn it in. But uh, my partner and I are fully convinced both of these projects are going to go off the rails at any moment, and they're not going to happen. Sure. But I mean, that's the nature that's of the, the nature business, of Hollywood. right? You that's don't the way know. It goes. Of course. But we're getting to have meetings and pitch meetings, yeah. and, we're, and we're learning the process. Yeah. Uh, because the thing I want to do is I've got a series called The Crypt, which isn't in print yet, but it's all free ebook. People can find, just search for Scott Sigler on iTunes, and you'll find 20, you know, 15 free books to read there. And The Crypt is one of them. And 
my um, goal or mission in life is to be able to turn that into a TV show myself, specifically three season TV show. Right. Where I know the cliffhangers on end of season one, end of season two, spectacular finish of the series. And after three seasons, done, walk away. Because uh, the, a couple of the shows that I fell deeply in love with, like Lost, wound up making so much money that they're like, okay, here, it's three seasons. No, fill in two full yeah, seasons. of course, of course. And it did a lot of damage to the storyline. Right. The, the people who write that show were faced with an impossible task. Let's just basically double the content of the show. That's, of course, really hard to do well. And the other one was Battlestar Galactica, right. which I'm just one of the best shows ever on television. I loved it. And you got to the end of it and you realized that they were, you know, kind of telling an ongoing story and didn't know exactly how they wanted to end the series. And um, as a fan going through those two disappointing feelings. So my goal is to put out this show called The Crypt three seasons. That's it. This is the story and do what um, the, the reason Jerry Seinfeld walked away from the number one show on TV because he's like, I just I want this to be a gem, and right. I don't want it to turn into something crappy. So I'm going to walk away when I'm on top. So no, that makes sense. That's the thing I'm building towards, and it's going to take it's going to take years and years to get there. Yeah, because that's the only music you can put stuff on iTunes. There's you. There's an audience. Done. Yep. You mm-hmm. don't need any middleman. Books, to a large degree, you can go from you to an audience. Yep. Anything that involves uh, cameras whether it's fictional or whether it's a TV series, whether it's fic- you know, a movie, a TV series, any of the above, that you need serious money. Yep. You know, you can't just do it in uh, at home. It just doesn't, or yeah, you can, but you know, the results are, you're not going to do lost, you know, that just right, the right. way it's going to. So that's the one place where you still need to go through the industry to a large degree. And it doesn't just depend on your creativity and your abilities or your marketing or any of th- I mean, that's part of the story, but it's not the only one because you also need yeah, it's, some. It's a group effort. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that on your own. <clears throat> Definitely, big time. Now, Lost is funny because when you mention it, um, from a storyline standpoint, Yes, I mean, by then, I after six seasons, I don't even remember what the hell the story was, right? I have <laughs> right. no idea what happened, how did it end? I'm like, I would be very hard-pressed to say, what exactly happened? The thing that's interesting, though, where I still think they did an awesome job is that I got to the point where I didn't care yeah. what happened because mm-hmm. the way each character was so damn three-dimensional, I wanted to see screen time of that character. What they are doing to me became completely secondary. Right. I didn't care anymore. And granted, you know, that is a still a weakness of the thing. You know, if the storyline doesn't hold after a while and there are you, there's a problem there. At the same time, the ability in terms of character development to create characters that can draw you in even when you have no damn idea what's happening, mm-hmm. there's something to be said about that skill. Like to me, any novel that I can think of, anything that I have in mind, I'm like, I want to develop characters like lost characters, mm-hmm. you know, because they're just so much that each one of them, you love them, you hate them, you relate, you totally don't, You, it's a mental trip in itself. So, mm-hmm. but I remember in all the discussion with people who, you know, got addicted to lost and then they feel let down because it's like, hey, what the fuck even happened? I'm mm-hmm. so lost by now. I have no idea what we're talking about. I totally get it if you still care about the story to me i guess my personal thing i got to a place where the story didn't matter anymore which i don't think it ever happened with anything else you know i want a good story i want yeah. a trajectory i want the structure mm-hmm. every single thing i've enjoyed as that so that's sort of the anomaly to it all but i felt like yeah give me six seasons they, that's <laughs> they, yeah, they were they were exceptional at creating characters that you really cared about yeah and uh and 
part of the mystery, not really knowing the the gradual reveal of those characters was part of the magic too. To start out a show and having no idea who these people were, yep. and then gradually, and and for all of the the lack of continuity they had in the storyline, they did a really good job of here's what this character's like, yep. and then slowly peeling back the onion to show you how they got that way, right. which I have not really seen in a show before. And no. it and, and the characters, for the except for the, the filler seasons that they jammed in, sure. the characters had amazing continuity. Like, they, they already knew the backstory before. It felt like that. They right. knew the backstory before you saw Sawyer, and, and, and uh-huh. then when you saw what made him the, the, the a-hole that he was... You know, he's even more sympathetic Thought character. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, yeah. they were really strong at that. And Battlestar Galactic was very similar in having really, really good characters. Right. And draw, drew you through everything. You mentioned uh, the guys who do uh, Justified are working with you now. Yep. That's a hell of a show. That's oh, pretty cool. I love cool. that show. Yeah. yeah. We, They're we, last season, too, so they'll have plenty of time for you. Uh, did they say it's the last season? Yeah. Really? I had not heard that. No. I just heard it like two days ago. Sad. I'm bummed too. I like that show a lot. Oh, huge fan. But you're right. The genius of uh, Breaking Bad is the one I would say. Yeah. They went in and they easily could have done two more years of messing with the Eastern Europeans and Mm -hmm. all sorts of crazy. You could even got another offshoot of that. But they didn't. Right. It's like, it's great. It's tight. We know where it ends. Cut the and head off. Sometimes Ned Stark new. needs to get his head that's, chopped off. That's new in Hollywood. Yes. You've never you've never seen that before, where the artistic expression outweighs the sheer uh, you know episodic advertising value. Right. Breaking Bad could have easily gone on for two more seasons, three yep. more seasons. They could have introduced a cute kid and a puppy. I mean, it could have been any number of things. That, <laughs> but they were like, "This is you know we we're we're sort of stretching it out a little bit now. We feel like we're reaching the end of it, and they end the story. Right. And, and I'm bummed. I bum justified is going to end, but. Yeah, and Dexter was one that maybe went one or maybe Ooh. two seasons longer than it could have because sure. the general conceit of here's a serial killer that kills serial killers, money for three seasons. Yeah. And then after that, the writers are like, geez, wh- how do we come up with something new for this and where do we take it? It's funny. We all knew it, we all knew it at Comic-Con when uh, baby Dexter was on a button that <laughs> they were done. There's no, yeah. this is never going to fit together. I'd put him in the backpack when I went to do my murders, and it was very, yeah. you know. No, no, I mean, that's that was a hell of a show by itself. It was. I Those mean, first three seasons a... were fun. The Doke season was unbelievable. Yeah, it was you know? great. And it just, just flamed out. And well, then they, characters intermingling just so you had enough page to, to jam these people in for, well, we got no reason for them to even be here. Uh, it was such a, it, it, it had ugly. to be such a challenge for the writers to yes. be like, you know, and like that's, and if you're a writer, if you're a showrunner, that's your job. Yep. You know, are you going to be able to get another job after this? There's a lot of to fight for those jobs. Who so knows? The the impetus to try and write really good stuff and and keep a show and keep an audience interested, but with that one general conceit to the show, that's incredibly challenging. And eventually, you just eventually you run out of ideas. There's only so much you can t- come no, up with. No, definitely. For the most part, though, I'm amazed at how good of a job they have done in yeah. all of those. Whether it's Lost, whether it's Dexter. I mean, those are clearly shows that probably have gone a bit too long. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that, yes, that's the reality of it, the actual skill in keeping it together in a way that there's not this sharp collapse. There's just the, uh, maybe this season could have done this and that. But overall, it's still top high quality right. stuff. It's right. Let's say something about the writing process of these people. Uh, the one, the one I'm waiting for is the Breaking Bad spinoff now, right? With, uh, with the lawyer, as I, the I give character. it no hope. I just, it seems like it's going to be well, I'm, schlocky and I'm really and I, I want to be proven wrong for sure. But because the the 
you know, I told my goal is to make that show called The Crypt three seasons. Right. And to be able to sell that to a network that has to invest a ton of money in that is be like, yes, but we're going to build in these spinoff opportunities in sure. this. So if you are happy with the product and it's making money, you can drop this spinoff into the same time slot, same tone, same feel, yeah. but a brand new story. So I'm really interested to see if Vince Gilligan can pull it off with a secondary character, but kind of keep the same, will, will that model work so that you can end the show before it goes back? And that's totally fair. For because, uh, yeah, I mean, you get the best <laughs> of both worlds, right? You get a season or two or three or whatever that has a whole artistic integrity to it where it's exactly how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you still try to bank into it with something else, but, you know, the something else doesn't necessarily screw up the value of the first part you right. know maybe it's kind of like even in movies you know you have the lord of the rings and the hobbit mm -hmm. people may love both and they think that both are amazing and clearly you know the audience of the lord of the rings is gonna go check out the hobbit that's the nature of the business but if let's say the hobbit movies absolutely suck which i don't think they do i think they're actually really good still it doesn't really affect the first three you know mm -hmm. that trilogy is completed in and of itself yeah. and then you have a spin where you can hook it and if it works great and for some people it will work and if mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't compromise what that jam was right and uh, yeah there's something something very brilliant about that concept you know yeah, the, that, the, that's a great that's the, a perfect example yeah there's three two separate sets of movies and they're totally related and you can watch them in order but they don't have to be Connect. You don't have to watch number two to watch number six. Right, 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 exactly. So yeah, if you can do it in movies, let alone with the one that really pissed me off, I don't know if you ever saw um, HBO at this series Rome a while back. Mm, I didn't catch it. Never saw that one. Mm. One of my favorite TV shows ever, and they did two seasons, was doing really well in terms of audience, really well in terms of uh, critical reception. It just cost too damn much too money. Expensive. And mm -hmm. they were like, you know, we can do the Sopranos that sell even more for a quarter of the money why you know it's right. like yeah right. it's awesome but sorry it costs too much mm -hmm. uh, just that's that's the reality of yeah. that you know and that's why um books are such a great thing because yeah. you've got your budget is all the money that's ever existed ever <laughs> times 10 you can write anything you want to write right and, but uh and and as i've gotten more involved with hollywood uh, over the past five years you learn a lot more about it and the fanboy anger at, I can't believe they put Batman in that cape. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. All of that has gone away. And now I mostly watch movies just from a purely structural, like, I wonder why they made that choice. Yeah. Was that budgetary or was the, you know, the studio executive's nephew put on the screen, right? You know what? Every, even something just to make it onto the screen right. is amazing accomplishment. It's yeah. unbelievable how much work goes into putting out a movie or a TV show. Yeah. And then now that I know that, I feel a little dumb for how arrogant I was about everything. You know, when I was just a typical sci-fi fanboy like everybody else. Now you understand it's it's a really big art form just to get something on the screen at all. Then to make it good on top of that is really high levels of skill. For but, every hundred that are actually finished. Uh, Three will get a theatrical distribution. Not, oh, is that right? Not started halfway, and, and but to actually like finished in credits and ready and doable. Three is that right? Holy we'll, cow! We'll get never a heard of that. Oh yeah. So you know it helps a little bit. That's where the Sharknados of the world make their way to sci-fi and things like that. <laughs> but still, there's a lot of folks that make a lot of movies. Shit, I know all about it. That mm -hmm. just sit on a shelf because there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah, but yeah. That, at the same time, that messes with your mind because it's like when you think about how much work goes into producing one, mm -hmm. sometimes when the quality is just horrendously low, you're like, really? You put 
you jumped through 17 million hoops to get to these? Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? What yeah. was it before you jumped through the hoops? I yeah. mean, how bad was... Well, there's always that. There, there's all, always that reaction. Didn't they watch the dailies? I mean, weren't right. you guys looking at this as you made it? For some movies that are we'll incredibly... post. Yeah. You're looking at like, there had to be 20 people watching this stuff yeah. at the end of the day. They lie to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get Because you got to show up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, call still 5 a.m. It was a terrible day. Mm-hmm. But if you sit and, and dwell on how terrible that, that $4 million you blew today was, you're never going to show up the next day. <laughs> wow. That's rough. All right, I have a multi-layer question for you just because I know you read Stephen uh, King's On Writing, which I just yeah. thought was incredible. Mm-hmm. And years ago, I used to, of all things, try to push books in Walmarts. Okay. And that's Anderson that was the company that pushed that. So, um find myself interviewing Anne Rice not long after reading On Writing. And in On Writing, Stephen King says that he thinks that he has tapped into the only true form of telepathy of actually entering his words into another person's mind. Mm -hmm. She completely disagreed. So to add another layer to this, first of all, is listening to an audiobook the same as reading a book? Because I don't get the same thing out of it. It's not not exactly the same. They're, They're very similar. But now, instead of the author dumping the words directly into your brain, now you've got the actor's interpretation. And if you, I think um, Kathy Bates did a Stephen King book. I can't remember which one. It wasn't Misery, but she did another audiobook. And I had read the book by myself and then had a long trip. So I bought the Kathy Bates in, 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 in rendition of it. And they're completely different huh. because of what she, you know, she she's amazing. And she brought... She interpreted characters and made them talk in ways that I hadn't thought of. And it's everything from, you know, I didn't put that there. And you read that in your book and you hear it in your head. And then Kathy Bates says, I didn't put that there. The whole meaning changes instantly. Right. So I think they're completely different. They're completely different experiences, but, but related because you're still making all the scenery yourself. So a description of the castle... Um, and most of the big authors give very brief descriptions of things to let your imagination take over. Right. You're probably going to see basically the same thing. And you are still your, your own special effects budget for that. So that's why they're similar. So how do you feel about the idea of you're actually, it's that transmission between those, le- those letters and, and symbols you put on the page. And as I'm decoding that, whose voice is in the back of my head? Is it my voice or is it a combination of your symbols and my... Um, I guess decoding of it. I think it depends on how much uh, character description is done. Some authors go into great detail to describe character looks and voice and mannerisms, and then there are, um, you know, Stephen King's main characters are largely he just lets the dialogue speak for itself and lets you interpret that and come up with a character that you think the person is. But I fully agree that the written word is telepathy. There's no other way around it. I have now taken my thoughts out of my head, put it here. And 200 years later, somebody else can pick that up and know my thoughts in their own head. There's is the only, the only arguable fact there is, is I'm not directly transmitting via some kind of imaginary beam. But it's yeah, I mean we are re- we are reading the thoughts of people who've been dead for three, four, five hundred years. So I agree with that all the way. So you did Gardner versus Architect. Where do we put this poor victim at? Uh, I don't he know. Seems to be an amalgamation of both. I, I think. Mm. Largely, there's like an architectural structure, but it sounds like, I don't, I probably has to fall mostly into architect, especially if you're like, when you get done with that, you want to be done with it and move on. Yep. Um, He's a rooftop gardener. He's a a rooftop gardener. After he builds the 
Yeah, uh, build a building and then go through what you can. No, but I think it's because to me the creative writing process, the actual writing, the style. Because to me it's all about style. You know, mm-hmm. I put in that word. That's not the same as that other word. It's that fucking word, and that has to. To me, the story has to be so clear in my mind, or whatever I want to do, the structure of it all has to be so clear in my mind because one hundred and ten percent of my focus has to be on the style, on the words. So the flow of it, of where I'm going, I don't want to dedicate any more attention as I'm writing it. It already has to be there. So that's very architect-like because mm-hmm. I need to have the structure all in place in order to then play with it, you know, to do the whole thing. Okay. But yeah, I'm slightly manic about style. I think it's like there's that thing about words that to me is like, it's not just, um, to me, and again, this is because I have slightly high expectations for writing, but mm-hmm. to me, if I read a page, before the end of that page, that page better have sent something tingling down my groin and harden my nipple kind of thing. It mm-hmm. needs to be something that's so, there has to be that emotional level that's stirring me kind of thing. That to me is what I dig. Okay. So my expectation in that regard is so crazy high, which then I put on myself if I'm mm-hmm. trying to write something that the way I look at it is in every page I have to throw something there that's it's not just a transition in uh, I want to go from point A to point B and this is a decent way to get there there has to be and again probably is insane to some degree probably you know if you have that kind of approach you might as well do poetry where you can work 10 word lines and right, you just each right. word say what it's supposed to say if you're gonna write 300 pages good luck <clears throat> if you mm-hmm. try to do that but in some way that's still my goal in a way they're still my ideal okay Mm, whether that always works or not is a whole different game but that's very much the um, the point to it my my biggest work is once you get the structure down the story's going the right way is making sure that something happens with a character character shouldn't be the same at the end of every scene something should be slightly different about that character so and, and but with language i i have a different kind of um so I'm like I said, I basically write movies and just put them in book form. So right. it, it is the thriller plot. It is the arc. When I get down to that nitty gritty um, level of working with the words on the page, it's always to take myself out of the view. Mm-hmm. And it's little stuff like uh, we go through this all the time. Like I can't have the same word in two sentences next to each other other than simple conjunctions. Because right. I, when you look at it on the page, if I see or and then or here, there's something that clicks and it takes you out or having uh, two words that sound too much the same in a sentence. Right. I'll go through and we rework that over and over again. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's that's all to go back to the, I just want it to be invisible. And I call those things speed bumps. Uh-huh. So I go through I go through the same level of anguish you do on the page, not, not looking for the right way to express something, but almost to like vacuum myself out of it. Yeah. Because if you stop and think about what, if you stop and think about what the, why the writer is writing something in my kind of work, you're not thinking about the story anymore. And then that's a point where you can put the book down. (laughs) So it's all about uh, remove the speed bumps. You know, if, if, if I do that part correctly, you read through 50, 60 pages and have had no idea the time has passed on. Absolutely. Because ultimately boils down to flow and excitement. And if those things are there, you're doing the right thing. How Mm -hmm. you get the process that takes you there. Everybody has their own weird things. You know, everybody has their own quirks, right? The end of the thing, the only thing that counts is the result. If the result has that flow and excitement, you've done your job. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, doesn't matter what justification you had or what great the muse, whatever, who cares? It didn't do it. So you screwed up. They're (laughs) just where it's at. Yeah. Like, and that's it. 
Stephen King always comes up as a example for this because he's uh, so masterful at you're up till three in the morning and you're just gonna you have to finish that book right and then there's another horror author named Dan Simmons and I'm going back and reading some of his older work and his uh, his writing is you know more more poetic and mm-hmm. more descriptive and you, you read something and you put it on like wow that was really cool what you read but I you know I get through 20 pages 25 pages at a time and then I put it down right and it's not it's the the two ends of the spectrum. They're both basically writing, you know, shrivel up your nuts horror stories and uh-huh. trying to scare you. But one guy is clearly having fun playing with the English language and trying to create these beautiful pictures and really go deep in the character. And then uh, then there's Stephen King, who's just got his foot to the metal all all the time. And right. you, are, you know, I'm going to drag you through this until you're finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be more of the latter. Like it's just, right. I want it to be speed metal and, yep. and get you through that story. How do you deal, you know, when you spend so much time to produce something that you have developed the story, created it, wrote every single word that there is on that page in a thick book. How do you deal then with the public criticism by somebody who just may have picked up the book and just spent three minutes of their life while they were ordering coffee picking through and then they write a review and you're like what the fuck that's not at all you know like how does that it's something that clearly anybody who's creative has to deal with because Mm -hmm. you know there's uh, the other aspect of internet is that reviews are anybody can write a review which is good it's a great thing that anybody can write a review but also it means anybody can write a review, right? Including people who have maybe barely read the book, who just don't like how your name sounds, who right. saw your picture and decide, I don't like that dude, fuck him. So sometime, what's your feel for it all? I When I started out, like when Infected came out back in 2008, and I would see people who clearly hadn't read the book posting right. Amazon reviews. And you're like, it's obvious you haven't read the book. I would literally go on Amazon and, you know, get into tiffs with people like well no that's not what that means and and uh it's uh, it's a war of diminishing returns because you right. just there's no way to do that and have that person wind up feeling good about it right so then that grad that that evolved into oh, i'm sorry you didn't enjoy that book thank you for giving me a chance to entertain you clearly i'm not your kind of author and uh that started to work that worked much better and i was like well you know i'm, I'm not going to get into a debate with you about what this means and that was still only for the people who clearly had not processed the book. Or right. It, but then there were also reviews of people who had read the book and then would take it apart point by point. And you're like, okay, you read this book and you just thought it sucked. And right. that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. That's totally fine. Uh, and then as the number of reviews increased and pressure from my agent to be like, this is not how professional authors behave. You don't, you know, you don't get into these things. And then I gradually, so now I just really largely don't pay any attention to them at all. Right. Very rarely if somebody comes in and leaves a comment that is factually incorrect, like, oh, you screwed this up about this thing. And I will go back sometimes if it's a really nasty review, like, no, actually that is correct because other people read those reviews. Yeah, of course. And if there's somebody who sounds like they know what they're talking about saying that you are, don't do any research. Yep. You want to go in and at least for the people who look at it, like, no, 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 we, this is correct. Right. Um, and then uh, once in a while, somebody will point out a factual error or typo and they're correct. And I'm, right. when that happens, I will go back and go, thanks for pointing that. We'll try and fix that in the paperback or we goof that up. Sorry. Of course. Um, so that's, that's pretty much how I've handled it. So now there's almost no response to anything. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will still do though is 
regular, uh, just regular bloggers. So not somebody who's, you know, this isn't like a Huffington Post sure. book blog review. But when people go through the trouble to put up a review of your book on their personal blog, and I've got Google vanity searches going like mad and that pops up, I'll go in there and be like, wow, thank you so much for reading the book and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Or if they hated it, it's it's back to the same thing. You know, sorry you didn't enjoy that. Maybe I'll get you with another book. Of course. Because I've I found what's that the percentage on love hate on something like this? Like someone's going to go to the trouble. It's got to be like eighty five fifteen. It's more like 95 percent people right. who just because they're not going to the waste the time if they hate the book. They're, the the only time you see a lot of really negative reviews on Amazon is when a book has been hyped uh-huh. and they put a lot of money into marketing it, or for example, it's just a natural juggernaut. Like someone comes out of no, nowhere, like Hugh Howie's Wool, which is an ebook. That has sold, I mean, an enormous amount of copies. So there's an, a lot of natural hype about it and people raving about it. And then somebody who will go in and buy it because of that hype doesn't like it. They'll leave horribly negative reviews, whereas normally they just would have left it alone. So you get that. But for the most part, you know, the average review on Amazon's probably three and a half stars. So right off the bat, the majority of people really dig it. Right. Most people are closer to 3.7, 3.75. And, um, I've been really fortunate because of the podcast audience. I've got a lot of people who will go leave reviews, and we get up in the four and a half out of five range right. for most of the books. So, it's it's there's there most people will not bother to go there unless they really love something. So yeah, it's funny how it makes you wonder when you see the ones who do leave nasty reviews, and then you look at their stuff, and everything they leave is nasty reviews. Yeah. It is like, yeah, man, you have some weird priorities in life. You know, it's like really that's how you want to spend your time. Just right. be pissed that bunch of things that, out there is. I do, and that's part of my process too. Because you want to look at the reviews, you want to see what people right. are saying. Are people enjoying your work, or you know what's right. going on? And then you see that really nasty review, and the first thing I do is assume, well, this guy's just an asshole, right? And then I'll go look at his review stream, and if it's a, a steady stream of one stars, you're like, yes, I was right, he's an asshole, and then you feel better. But if you go there, and it's like everything else is a five star. You're like, <laughs> he oh, just geez. doesn't like me. <laughs> he right. just doesn't like my stuff. Yeah, I yeah. I failed this this guy right here. So yeah, the thing that's tricky to me though in that regard is when. Because, I mean, if it's factual and it's just a disagreement, well, that's fine. You know, everybody has a different taste. That's mm-hmm. totally fine. The thing that puzzles me is when people make you say stuff that you never said. Yeah. And the way they interpret it is like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, except that that's not what I said. You know, it's like, if somebody wrote that, yeah, you're totally right. You're picky. But how the hell did you find that in this? You know, it's like it makes you... And that relates to, I guess, deeper questions of perception of reality, of what exactly is that people perceive when they relate to other human beings down the street, when mm-hmm. they read a book, when they watch a movie, when they... Because there does seem to be often a disconnect be- between what actually is out there and how people process it. And by the time it gets through their brain and they formulate an idea of what that thing out there is, it doesn't even resemble that thing right. anymore. Yeah, and it really messes with you in terms of like, I mean, there's not much you can do about that, right? Because no. it's like that. Just if you're there's something in your filter that's weird, and you read things that yeah. way. Well, you know, there and a lot of people come in with their own paradigm of what they expect to see. And what I find in my work, I'm I, I consider one of the things I've done well is I've got people on the far left who think I'm in the far left right alongside right. of them. Yeah. And I've got people on the ultra conservative, far religious right yeah. who think I am ultra conservative, far religious right. Yep. And that tends to hold true all across the spectrum until a character does something 
directly opposed to that person's moral view. So you'll get like, oh, I love this book, so much fun. Look at all these great people, you know, hacking each other up or whatever. And then if that happens to be, uh, you know, uh, like Infected's the book this happened the most with. That's the first book I put out with Random House. Right. And there's a character in it named Perry Dossie, who's an ex-University uh, of Michigan linebacker, so this big, giant, dangerous guy who's got a lot of rage issues. So the mo- most of the book is him, um, you know, flashback to his childhood when his dad slapped him around, his dad slapped his mom around, all these difficult things that made him the person he was. And then he has something that uh, makes him a little bit psychotic, and he kind of goes on a killing spree. And he kills this kind of person and this kind of person and then kills his friend. And then at the end of the book there, uh, his upstairs neighbor is an overweight lady and he's already killed like three or four people. Right. Right. All the stuff. He goes up and he is a, like a little bit rough with this lady and calls her a fat bitch. That's what he, cause he's, right. he's dehumanized at this point. And the amount of email I got from that and I'm like, you're a misogynist. You're all these things. And look at these misogynist characters. And, 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 and just this, and that was early in the career, so I responded to all of these. And the response was, yeah, well, look what he did to this character and this right. demographic and this demographic, and none of that bothered you. And you made it all the way to page 300 out of 330 before you had any problem at all until someone who looked like you was the one on the receiving end of the right. violence. That was a very, uh, very important moment in my career to try and understand of course that a lot of when people do spew hate at you for your work it's because you've hit that one little button of course in their paradigm that they don't like it's the day their toes got stepped on it's the day they're yeah, yeah it's fine to do anything you want to anybody else but as soon as you bother someone who looks like me then you are all of these things well when them conservatives find out you're from san francisco it's going to be a different <laughs> story yeah yeah no that's that's crazy other stuff that uh, you want to throw out there, things you're doing, how people can find you, projects, life, the universe? Uh, yeah, just uh, all of our stuff is free. We put out a free weekly episode of The Fiction at scottsigler.com. And you can also go to iTunes and search for My Name Scott Sigler. And we've got you know all of our ebooks and audiobooks, all the stuff that's for sale, but also all the free podcast stories are there. And uh, our business model is... We'll divide a book up into 30 parts, and it's free, but there's an ad at the beginning of it, just like everybody else. Of course. And people don't mind the ad. They can get it for free, or they can then pay for the whole thing, whatever they like. I would say that um, people who've never heard of me before could start with, um, if they're into real gory horror, they want and they want to pick up a book called Infected. Uh-huh. Because there's three books to that. There's Infected, then there's Contagious, then there's Pandemic, which concludes the trilogy. That story's over, and that just came out earlier this week. That's a great place to start. Um, if they're not into like the serious, serious gory stuff, then they should start with a book called Nocturnal. Mm-hmm. That's the first one that I wrote. The cop drama. That's the cop drama. That one's set in San Francisco. All the other books were set in Michigan because that's where I grew up. Right and now, this I've been in San Francisco eight years, so now that's a great book, and it's. Um, it's my love letter to the buddy cop movies of the 80s. Right. So it's this straight up buddy cop starts out like a police procedural comedy and then things go completely off the rails for these two poor guys. So they would really like those. Um, and the other place to pick everything up is at it's podiobooks.com, P-O-D-I-O-B-O-O-K-S.com. You can also get all my stuff there for free. Okay, perfect. Yeah. The man makes it really hard for you guys, I can tell. You know, it's like there's 17 different ways to get his stuff for free. Uh, yeah. So not a bad gig. Well, anything you want to throw out there, Rich? No, I'm good. I would just recommend everybody go out and uh, grab a little bit up and see if they like it. I mean, it's it's free to get a taste. 
Yeah. The first one's always free. <laughs> it's been going on 10 years now. We're like, just try it. It's free. Yeah, if you don't like, like it, it, you don't have to come no, back. No. It's like, free. Like a good pusher. <laughs> yes. That's how it works. Cool, man. Thank you so much Thank for coming so much. on. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. the fancy music means we're back to the end of the episode there you go that was a nice little conversation there guys go out if you're into the sci-fi books check them out have you a couple of free tastes and i'm sure you'll be ordering them hand over fist before you know it as we are saying yes the um, other things uh t-shirts drunk and Taoist t-shirts they are almost here they probably early may first couple of weeks of may at some point we'll get them in stock we'll start shipping to those of you guys who have pre-ordered and those of you guys who still want to order we probably still have most sizes most colors and stuff so just check the episode notes for it you'll direct you to the link tell you everything you need to do in that regard as far as uh, uh, affiliate sponsor big thank you to coracao chocolate and audible.com if you guys are in the market for audiobooks or fancy chocolate, that's the way to go. Check the episode notes. Audible, you get to try a free book. And if you like it, you continue. If you don't, you discontinue the service and you're done. Coracao, um, you get a discount on the food of the gods. So please check the episode notes for that our amazon link thank you thank you thank you to those of you guys who use it i'm aware of the fact that it's 99 us based because everyone else in the world was listening for some reason amazon kind of make it difficult where you can only use it in one country and you would have to set up bank accounts everywhere is a pain so those of you guys who would like to help and can't well thank you anyway for the good intentions and those of you guys who are um, who are using it thank you so much other than that, those of you guys who can't help through Amazon, however, some of you guys have been very generous in donating, and we deeply appreciate that. So let's, be, after saying thank you to Daisy House for the good music that we got to use all the time, let's go screw up a few people's names. Let the pottering begin. Big thank you to people who engage in the crazy things of sending us money for something that arrived to you for free. It makes no sense, and we love you for that. Desmond Colton, a recurring donor, who's uh, every single month, money comes our way. We love you. That's awesome. Similarly, big thank you to Paul Thompson. La- oh, I'm so sorry for the next man, because he's Lars de Vry. Lars de something. Sorry, man. Can't pronounce it from New Zealand. So you're far enough that hopefully you don't get mad if I... Screwed up your name too bad. Rico Martinez, Jean Red Flock, F L O C H, Flock, maybe. Scott Darner, Ben Burgess, Chris Manus- Manuzakis, uh, Lawrence Bellini, Claudia Rubio, Samuel Rapin, uh, James Price, Michal, Michal, I can't remember. I, I have a feeling that he told me he didn't want his name used so i'm not gonna use the last name just in case so just thank you anyway and uh, that wraps it for those of you guys who have engaged in this strange practice of sending us money we really really appreciate it helps keep the lights on 
Thanks as always. And a quick note, uh, Kiva.org growing like leaps and bounds. The uh, $10,000 sort of goal that we set is well within our grasp, well earlier than we thought it would be. So that's incredible. It shows that people who listen do respond to what we have to ask for and request for. And it's a great way for you to help somebody out in a small way. And you get the money back. That's the best part. You put the loan out, you put the 25 bucks, and they pay it back over 12 months to 18 months. It comes back into your pocket. If you're done then, put it back in your pocket, move on your way. But it's also an opportunity to do the awesome thing of just handing it out again. And once you get five or six going, you really got something that's going to make you feel good about yourself and help somebody out. They could use a hand and not get bent over by the mean banker man, motherfucker. Beautiful. That's it. You guys have an amazing day. Punto. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. showed you the way yeah oh man isn't that scary to think nice so don't kill people do that instead <laughs> <laughs> this was great it's fucking awesome get back to work